we have gotten ourselves to a place where over 50% of the planted acreage in the world is done so with seven varieties. If we come to the United States, it even pushes it up higher to almost 70% of the planted acreage is done with seven varieties. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. This is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The sponsor for this episode is Catavino Tours. Catavino Tours provides luxury travel, wine, and food tours in Portugal and Spain, and they are guided by a desire to reduce the ecological impact that travel can have by reducing waste, encouraging fewer and more meaningful trips, and by using well-vetted carbon offsets. They are currently booking at catavinotours.com slash OWP for Organic Wine Podcast for a fall sustainable and natural wine harvest tour. If you're considering a wine tour in Portugal and Spain and want to have that experience be more meaningful and conducted by a company who is thoughtful about their ecological impact, check out Catavino Tours by going to catavinotours.com slash OWP. That's C-A-T-A-V-I-N-O tours.com slash O-W-P for Organic Wine Podcast. And your tour will not only benefit you, but this podcast as well. I'll list that link in the show notes. Thank you for being thoughtful about your travel. Greg Jones is my guest for this episode. Greg is the CEO of Abisela Winery in Oregon and is a world-renowned wine climatologist. For over 30 years, his research has firmly linked weather and climate with grapevine growth, fruit chemistry, and wine characteristics in regions all around the globe. His work was also one of the first to tie climate change to fundamental biological phenomena in vines and the resulting influences on productivity and quality. His groundbreaking work has informed and influenced the wine industry across the globe, and we talk about what it means to apply the science of climate change to growing wine. Oregon is a unique place in the wine world in that it is known to outsiders mostly for a single variety of grape, Pinot Noir. Abasela happens to be the first winery to plant Tempranillo in the Pacific Northwest, and Greg talks about how important it is to diversify and experiment, especially given the data that we know about climate change. And he makes great points about the untapped genetic resources within just the single species of Vitis vinifera. There are some nuggets scattered throughout this entire interview, and I've included Greg's presentation on wine and climate change from the Vidinord Conference in the show notes at organicwinepodcast.com if you'd like to check them out. Enjoy. Greg, thank you. Welcome, and thanks for doing this. Oh, glad to do it. We met at Vidinord, and you were basically the, the opening day keynote speaker the first morning, um, giving a presentation called Climate grapes and wine, uh, climate change influences on wine production. And I thought that was such a great way to start this conference. And I, you know, just, it was my first introduction, not to uh, Abacella, where you are the CEO, but to the idea to you personally, and, and you being a wine climatologist. And I thought that was really cool as well and knew that I wanted to talk to you. So really, uh, really excited to talk about this. And I, I thought maybe we'll get into Abisela, I think maybe as like a two-part thing at the end of this. Um, if you, and I'd love to jump right into sort of your, your work and research as a wine climatologist. And, you know, it, just as by way of entry, it, it has occurred to me as a winemaker of, you know, and somebody who's concerned about the ecological impact of wine and making wine with these this kind of perspective of coming at it from an ecological perspective that it that wine provides this uniquely clear window into climate change do you think that's true well i definitely do and you know the 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 uh what you just mentioned about uh my family's winery abacella and my career as a wine climatologist they actually are intertwined from the beginning um so it's kind of interesting to uh, put, oh, yeah, the, put both of them together uh, to give you a little bit of a history uh, uh, behind this. But yeah. you know, getting back to your base statement, you know, that you just made. Um, uh, yes, I mean, I think that there's uh, some very, very big issues that we have out there, and we can talk about them later. But how I got started in all this was. Um, 
I had spent a, a couple of previous careers. Uh, I was a, a chef early on, and then I went into retail. I was in the uh, golf equipment business. And um, after some trials and tribulations and things occurring, I decided to go back to school. I, uh, I uh, decided to go back and get a degree in environmental sciences. I thought maybe I was going to be a hydrologist. I really was interested in water resources. You know, it just took me a little longer to figure out what I wanted to do within academia. So, so I went back to school. Uh, I went to the University of Virginia and I was studying environmental science. And I remember uh, uh, taking classes in ecology and geology and hydrology and climatology. And I really was um, uh, quite interested in whole, the entire weather and climate framework of things. And I remember a professor once told me, a fluid is a fluid is a fluid. And he was basically saying that you can study climatology and really study fluids because uh, I had an interest in water. Well, the atmosphere is essentially a water envelope, uh, just at a different density. And so, so when I went back to school, I, I, I shifted off into the climate side of things. But this also happened right at about the same time that my father was looking to uh, get out of the medical profession and grow grapes and make wine. Right. So, so these these two things were really connected uh, from the beginning. Uh, back when he was uh, starting his pursuit, it was really associated with uh, things like why aren't certain varieties being grown in the United States, or where is the best place that we can grow uh, varieties given what we know. And you know, people before me had had done, of course, some. Uh, some fairly decent work on trying to understand the, the you know, the weather and climate connection with grapes. But, uh, but as my dad started asking me these questions, uh, I started asking myself questions too, because I was moving further into my academic uh, career. And uh, so I started asking my professors questions. And, and one thing led to another where, where I was uh, getting data and information from my dad, and that helped me help define what I was doing academically. My, my father's interest in, in growing grapes and making wine was centered on the variety Tempranillo. Uh, Tempranillo has a very uh, uh, kind of, uh, I think, an interesting history in America. Uh, it did not come over with Europeans who settled in the East and, and traversed across to the West. We, uh, we know that French, Italian, German uh, varieties made it over uh, with with that uh, historical development into California. Uh, and Tempranillo and many Portuguese or other Iberian varietals really only made it to the New World in a kind of a roundabout way through Central and South America. Mm. Um, early on, when I started doing this research with my father, I was trying to find uh, what was the ideal climate uh, framework behind uh, growing Tempranillo. And Going looking at Europe, of course, uh, we honed in on the Ribera de Duero and uh, the Rioja region, but looked at all of the regions growing Tempranillo and trying to better understand their climates and why wasn't the grape being grown here in the United States. Right. So all of those things happened kind of together. And so my dad's interest in doing what he wanted to do helped drive what I ended up doing in terms of becoming a wine climatologist. Right. Yeah. Sorry. I shouldn't have uh, tried to separate those two things. I see. Yeah. Totally organically development there. I, well, and, and you mentioned, I mean, since we, since we're on it, you mentioned the history of Tempranillo and the new world and really your, your parents and now you are part of that history being some of the first planters in, in, uh, I, I think some, the first plantings in Oregon, is that true? The first plantings in Oregon and in reality, the first production in the entire Pacific Northwest. Right. Um, Tempranillo had been produced in California uh, uh, before, but the history in California is interesting. It really uh, was being uh, grown in California mostly just for large volume uh, of lower priced uh, wines. Uh, early on, if you go back into the late 1800s or so, when some of the real first uh, work was being done out of UC Davis, uh, a couple of different uh, uh, people, Bialetti and then Amarine and Winkler, uh, had, had done all of the trials for varieties. 
and there's really good history behind this. You can go look at it and, and in, the, in the archives. And what you find is, is that when they were doing the trials and trying to understand if, if a given variety would do well in California, they would do a trial for three, four, five years, and then they would write about it and, and, and say whether it was recommended or not. And then if it was, how, how to plant it and what to do. So if you look at Tempranillo, though, in the late 1880s uh, or 1890s, um, all of the uh, trials ended up being not recommended. And then you go into the early 1900s and even up into the 1940s and 50s, Tempranillo was, quote, quote, not recommended. And <laughs> we think it was largely because they were planting it in the wrong place. Yeah. Uh, if you, if it, well, and then the other piece of it, of course, was the we think it was a very different clone that was being planted in the U.S. compared to what produced really good quality wines in in the the, the Douro or in in the Rioja region. So, so planting the wrong clone in the wrong place meant that it was failed before it ever even started. It just didn't have an opportunity, and so. That history uh, meant that as you, we went into the kind of the, the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, and of course today, that there has not been very much Tempranillo at all planted anywhere in California. Um, in Oregon, we're, uh, we were, as I said, we were the first to plant it in 1995. We have uh, currently have seven clones of Tempranillo where we are, maintain really good relationships with people in Spain that are doing research on different clonal characteristics. And, and so uh, our, our framework was, you know, when my dad and I first started this whole entire conversation, uh, his research in, in Europe, and, and this may sound, uh, you know, blasphemous for, for some people out there, but his research in Europe told him that it had nothing to do with the soil. <laughs> and soil, soil was immaterial in, in many ways, because if you don't get the climate right, the soil doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and so we focused on finding the most ideal place that had a similar climate from a growing season length to a nighttime, daytime temperature difference, uh, rainfall patterns. And we figured if we got the climate, you know, 99% right, and we found a place that had decent soils that had decent water holding capacity, decent nutrition, we, we would be okay. But without getting the climate right, nothing else would have worked. Right. So while, I mean, while we're talking about it, where did that end up being? <laughs> yeah, well, we looked, uh, I, I should say my father looked uh, many, many places. He looked from uh, places in, uh, in New Mexico to places in California, uh, Washington, Idaho, uh, but ultimately settled upon Oregon. Uh, Oregon is, of course, um, largely known for Pinot Noir production, and rightfully so. It's about 60% of the, the overall production in the state. Um, but uh, Oregon also grows 75 other varieties, and it does so because the climate is, is quite diverse. We have a climate in the western valleys of uh, Oregon that, that range as much as they do from Burgundy to um, Coroti. In, in, in France. Right. And then if you go from the Willamette Valley east, it also changes tremendously going over toward the Walla Walla and Columbia Valley areas. So we have a tremendous ranges of climate here in Oregon. And we honed in on a few different places. And ultimately, my father decided that the Umpqua Valley, <clears throat> American viticulture area, uh, had the best opportunity to do what he wanted to do but also presented a, a climate structure that had much lower risk than other places. And what I mean by that is, is that when, you, when you're growing grapes, the, the big risk issues, of course, are, are things such as frost, winter freezes, spring frost, fall frost, rain during harvest, uh, and, and even heat extremes during the summer. Um, so we ended up here because this place had the climate structure the growing season framework that we thought matched uh, Ribera de Duero the best and had very little risk overall. Yeah. And yeah, so we'll, we'll come back to that. There's some other really interesting things about there. I know the, the soil ended up being much more interesting than you hoped it would be anyway. So you got a sort of a double whammy with the climate and the soil there. Um, but but uh, 
let's come back to that and because I I, I want to get into maybe some of this the, the the wine climatology stuff and just you know you answered some of the initial questions but where are you now with it what are what are some of the I mean for somebody who is thinking about like obviously we know that climate is important you just discussed how important it is to specific varieties and things like that but can you talk more broadly about why what what are some of the most important questions to the study of wine climatology that sure and, and this goes back to you know, this goes back to the very beginning when my dad and I started talking about this. I, um, you know, like any good burgeoning researcher, scientist, uh, I started uh, doing research into what was known about uh, wine and climate and weather. And in doing so, what I found is, is that, um, yes, the industry at the time, 1980s and 1990s, uh, you know, had a pretty good feel for kind of what the climate structure and, and framework was for growing grapes in different places in the world. But what was happening was is that there was no one in the climate science community looking at, uh, at wine as a specific system. And nobody within the wine industry was looking at wine at the way a climatologist could. And so it would just, it, it, to me, there were so many unanswered questions I was uh, uh, trying to find data that could give me more information about uh, aspects of temperature and rainfall and soil moisture and so on and so forth. And it just it just wasn't there in the way I thought a, a climatologist could provide. So in some ways, when my dad and I started this conversation, it opened up an entire world of potential for me in terms of being a, a wine climatologist. Uh, the things that I thought were really important and that we just, we still, I think we know more now after 30 years of, of the research I've done, but we've got a long way to go. When we talk about any one variety and, 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 and you know, there are 5,000 plus Vetus vinifera varieties out there. When we talk about any one variety, we really don't know very much about its climatic thresholds. Where is it too cold for it to produce? Where is it too warm for it to produce? Where is it most economically viable and has the least amount of risk associated with weather events? Those kind of things to me were, there was some information about that back when I first started, but it really um, was, I think, limiting. And that's what I spent the next 30 years of my career doing is right. trying to help define that. I collected data all over the world were uh, varieties that that I think the, the world was interested in. I also collected data from uh, many places growing obscure varieties, trying to better understand that. And then I started collaborating with people in Germany and Italy and Portugal and Spain and Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Chile, Argentina, you name it. I, I started working with people all over the world to, to rein in as much kind of collaboration as I could. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of where I've gotten to today. I, uh, I, I'm no longer in academia, but I still am very connected to the world of wine climatology. I mean, just even our conversation here and being at the Vitti Nord uh, conference, I, you can tell that I, I continue to stay engaged with uh, this area. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like you said, I mean, the, some of the things you just brought up, this wine gives you this global perspective and on you know, like you could, you could get isolated in perhaps other fields, but as soon as mm -hmm. you, you know, with the wine does give you this global window on things that are happening around the planet. And well, and there, there's another, there's another tie to that, Adam, that I think is really important. Um, when I was uh, really trying to convince my, uh, my major advisors in my PhD program that I wanted to study wine, there were a few that were pointing me more toward broad acre crops like uh, corn or wheat, soybean, rice, uh, because of course it's a much uh, uh, more necessary crop system to feed the planet. And, right. and I looked at that and I, you know, I, 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 I get it. Doing some modeling uh, for wheat production or corn production would have been very uh, interesting and useful, but wine just offers so much else. It, 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 wine has history, the development of civilizations. It has amazing geography. It has economics. It has uh, sensory. It has chemistry, biology. 
uh, soil. It you know, it's just so rich. Ties into gastronomy, ties into romanticism, and I just looked at, I looked at that entire wealth of things that potentially one could study, and said, no, I don't think I want to go study rice or corn, corn. <laughs> right, right. Uh, sorry, no, no offense to corn or rice. <laughs> no, no, not not whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, I totally get it. Uh, yeah, no, just teasing. Um, <laughs> well. And your study mostly focused then on uh, vinifera. Is that correct? You haven't the most of the the research that you've done. Is that correct? Yeah, most of it's been on vinifera. But you know, I, I, the other piece of it is some of my general research on the climate side of it has looked at uh, places such as cool climate regions and how they've uh, transitioned over time without regard of uh, of the varieties being grown there. It's just how have climates in certain areas trended over time? For right. example, this is something that a lot of people don't know. The Willamette Valley of Oregon, which is considered to be maybe one of the top two or three producing Pinot regions in the world today, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, it was not suitable to grow grapes. There, there, matter of fact, in the early 50s, there were no commercial vineyards in Oregon. And it wasn't until the 60s that some of the early pioneers came and planted and, 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 and really stuck with it in very difficult times. If I was a consultant, knowing what I know today back then, I would tell somebody, you'd be crazy to plant grapes in Oregon. <laughs> it was just too cold. Growing seasons were too short, too much rain during harvest and, and too much rain during bloom. And, and then fast forward to where we are today, it's a, just a completely different world. Right. Yeah. Well, and I want to just give you some props. Uh, did you realize when you went down this path that you would be one of the authors on a Nobel Prize winning uh, report on climate change? Like, was well, this... <laughs> I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily think much about that. But, uh, you know, I think w what happened within the the IPCC framework is, is that um, to be legitimate, the that scientific group needed to cover uh, all areas of the globe, whether it be uh, um, ice, uh, snow, glaciers, um, uh, rainforests, uh, ocean influences, crop systems. And, you know, I, I was just fortunate to be in the right place to be asked to contribute to one of the earlier reports. And I think many climate scientists and geoscientists in general were probably uh, in the same framework and still to this day, I when when the IPCC reports come out, I know a lot of people that do that, that do work on those reports, and you got to give them a lot of kudos because it's not an easy uh, process to not only collect and and put together this information, but to tell it to the public and the policymakers in ways that make sense. Yeah. Well, let's jump into you know some of the things that you've learned <laughs> doing this work. I I I am I. I wonder, I mean, if I can start by just asking, are you, are you, uh, how does it affect your mental state? Where are you emotionally <laughs> with the work that you do? Does it, does it keep you up at night? Are you? Uh, well, I, I think I've always had to look at it objectively as being a scientist. I, um, yeah. um, I mean, I can tell you personally that I am, I have some optimism, uh, but I also have a lot of pessimism in terms of, uh, society's ability to kind of deal with this issue. Um, we, it's really a, an amazing framework by which uh, society in general looks to governments to Im input, implement the mechanisms by which we will make things better, but yet governments can't agree on doing anything. And, right. and uh, you know, so I, I think that I, 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 it's definitely difficult to have a, a pessimistic uh, feeling behind that, but in general, as a scientist, I view my job is to tell the science, to bring it to as much people as possible. And this does get back to the question that you mentioned, the, this idea that, that that wine helps due to how it touches the, the fabric of civilization. It, it helps describe the story. I mean, I could be studying some other uh, uh, ecological system somewhere in a in a mountainous region and and say that I found some aspect of climate change and it might not really touch people quite the same way. But yeah. when you 
talk about it relative to wine. Wine is something that the vast majority of people uh, have some sense of. And uh, the story is pretty clear and pretty uh, per, per, pervasive. Uh, and so um, I, I think the, the system is very um, useful. Uh, I, I've always told my students uh, that if you are not aware, you cannot perceive the risks and know how to adapt or mitigate. And so um, I've just tried over the years to bring that awareness as best I can. Um, but, you know, I know that it's, uh, I get done giving a talk and um, I know that it's um, uh, a little disturbing and it's um, a little worrisome, clearly. Um, but if you, we don't talk about it, we, we can't even begin to perceive anything in terms of right. how it affects us. Well, let's talk about why it is disturbing um, and what that awareness is that you're bringing. Because I, th I think that that sort of struck me during your presentation at Vidinord, which was, I, I feel like I've become used to seeing the the graphs and the charts that you presented, uh, you know, the temperature trends and things like that, whether it's, you know, the difference between equatorial and Arctic temperature, you know, temperatures, uh, mean temperatures, or whether it's, you know, just a global mean temperature trends over the last century, um, or any number of metrics like that, where I, you know, you predictably, or whether it's a, extremities or whatever, the, these charts all predictably, uh, you know, either if it's a temperature trend are swinging upward uh, <laughs> in the last, you know, since the 80s, uh, since, you know, around 1980, just a, you know, very direct upward trajectory, or whether it's, um, you know, like, like I was saying, the temperature difference between Arctic and equatorial is dropping. So it's, there's less difference between those temperatures and just every, every metric to me, I, and I'm used to seeing that, but, you know, can you sort of give a broad scope, you know, some of those points that you have to bring awareness to as you're, as you're dealing with, you know, advising people or just bring awareness about climate change, especially in relation to wine? Well, I, you know, I think the, um, the, th what always hits home to me is, is that um, the, our human structure in terms of society and everything that we deal with makes us very, um, uh, I think, unaware of kind of what some of these kind of changes mean to the rest of the organisms on this planet and the systems on this planet. You know, when, we, when we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a one or two degree uh, a change in temperatures for for humans as we go about our daily lives, we don't really have quite the same you know impacts from that than uh, organisms might have, whether they're in the oceans or in the mountains or in the soil. So small changes uh, that we tend to think are small, one degree, uh, are huge for. Uh, all kinds of ecological systems around us. So, you know, when we talk about anything, whether it be, you know, a, a salamander that lives in a certain aquatic system or, uh, a, you know, a, a, a tropical uh, tree or, 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 or something that lives within a tropical system, you know, all of these kind of things have much more uh, delicate uh, climate thresholds than, than humans uh, do. And, and we just don't tend to, I, I think, uh, absorb that very well. And, and so, you know, taking the, it from that framework and going into the wine idea, from what we know today about uh, wine grapes, they, you know, are, as I said, 5,000 plus vinifera grapes out there in the world. Uh, and wine grapes in general can only grow from about 20, or let's say uh, uh, it, it, this audience is mostly English, right? Yeah, English speaking okay, so, at least. Yeah. yeah, so wine grapes can be grown in growing seasons that average about, you know, 53, 55 degrees Fahrenheit to about 70, 72 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you take the, the growing season wherever the uh, a variety might be grown, that, that's its basic limits. But that's the entire Vitus vinifera and even hybrid pool um, uh, that is pushing on the cooler side. But you take any one of those 5,000 plus varieties and you drill in and you look at what its suitability is, instead of 53, 55 to 70, 72, it's likely going to be, you know, 57 to 58. 
Right. So, <laughs> so uh, an individual variety may have a much, much smaller uh, uh, kind of uh, um, threshold or interval between which it can be grown. So a, a one degree change could mean that uh, a region growing whatever variety it may be, it, that variety may not perform very well there anymore with a one degree change, or it could perform better. And that's kind of the conundrum with this is that some places have gotten better. I mean, if you think about the the the, uh, the industry in Britain 30, 40 years ago, it was non-existent. And today right. it's a, a very, there's some lovely, lovely wines and not just sparkling wines being made in Southern, uh, Southern Britain. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that, that those kind of things are really important to understand that, that we do have some varieties that have a wider kind of threshold for where they can be grown, but it doesn't encompass the entire Vitis vinifera uh, threshold. Each variety has these much more narrower climate niches, so to speak. Right. And it's, it's interesting to say that, not that some of these plants can't exist outside of those windows, but that in terms of what makes a good wine, the quality quickly drops off on either side of those thresholds. Is that what you Yeah, it's, it's either the quality drops off or the, uh, the, the stability in the productive framework drops off. Got it. Okay. So what, there clearly things seem to be getting warmer pretty much globally, like you just pointed out, um, Britain, Southern Britain becoming a, a wine region. Um, but also you really made a great point that in addition to general warming trends, there's a general trend of more uh, variability and extremity uh, throughout a growing season. Mm -hmm. So we're, yeah, rather than a, a gentle climate, we're getting much more extreme climate Mm -hmm. uh, within within the same range, within the same parameters, um, yeah. can you talk? You know, about I, that? I think we've I, we've known this all along. If you a, a the, if you do very simple kind of modeling studies, you you find pretty quickly that a warmer environment is a more variable environment, Makes meaning sense. that uh, the warmth in an environment is really driven by energy. And so if you have more energy in the system, you have the potential for, to have more variability in it. Um, uh, you uh, likely you know, heard about all of the, the cold air that uh, came down into the United States and, and really wrecked havoc over the holidays uh, for much of the U.S. Um, you know, that kind of thing is we've always had events like that in, in Earth's history. But the issue is, is that somewhere else in the Arctic, like in Siberia, it was 40 to 50 degrees above average. And right. that, that pulsing of the atmosphere from place to place and producing extreme kind of situations is largely what we know from just general dynamics of how the atmosphere works. Right. And, well, this, this is maybe, maybe I can ask, what are some of the, the, the challenges that we should be looking at as, as wine growers, wine producers, where... You know, what does all this mean in terms of us making wine and what we should be thinking about, what we should be looking at? Well, I, I think from a general sense, I think the, the industry um, is uh, capable of adapting uh, to quite a bit of climate change. Uh, but, you know, adapting to average changes in climate is one thing, but being resilient uh, to weather extremes is another. And so... Building, building systems um, uh, in vineyards and wine production that, that have lowered vulnerability and higher resiliency to, uh, to climate in general, I think is very important. I mean, this, is being, this discussion is going on in, in municipalities around the world in all kinds of production systems, trying right. to build, build systems that are more resilient. And that, that does mean thinking about how climates have evolved and will evolve likely in the future. The, the problem with the future, of course, is that even though our models are really good, uh, there's still uncertainty. Uh, and so we have to understand that there's uncertainty in terms of how that uh, might play out. But, um, but you know, the, the idea that, and, and this is, I, I like to say this because I think it brings the point home, but I don't want to call out any one wine region in the world, but I, so I'm going to use it in very general kind of framework. 
if if you're a wine region and you've been growing one or two varieties for a long time and, and climate change over the last 50 years or so has made your system much more productive and even higher quality, that's all great. Uh, but what happens if you have the same amount of warming over the next 50 years? Then that production system may be pushed beyond a threshold. And I think it's really important for us that, that we understand that what wines come from some regions today may not be the wines that come from those regions in the future. And, and that comes back to the human society framework of it, that as consumers, we shouldn't expect everything to always be the same. I mean, <laughs> climate history tells us that. Yet, yet we are in this kind of economic framework that it drives that. Um, you know, and just even getting back to something as simple as watermelons in January in Chicago's grocery stores. That just right. shouldn't happen. Right. Yet it does. And so right. we come to expect it. And therefore, the, the consumer comes to expect it. Therefore, the supplier and the grower and the distributor will always make it be there. Right. So we have, we have some real challenges across our entire consumption patterns associated with things. And, and I think wine is just one of them, whether it be a, a, a Syrah or a Cabernet or a Pinot Noir or, heaven forbid, some variety that people can't pronounce. We need to... We need to be more adaptable to changes in these. Uh, and I think I think some of the younger generation and their drinking uh, interest today will probably drive some of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm laughing because I don't know if you know how much you're uh, singing my song. But yeah, it's a I mean, I'm, I'm a huge proponent that we should just abandon variety, varietal labeling for wines um, just to just to retrain consumers while we still can, like while we still have a chance to, to allow for adaptation, um, well, and, and as well as it's, it's a historical model too. I mean, that's, it's yeah. like, it's only been recently that we've done that. So it's not like I'm proposing something new. I'm just saying like, Hey, we abandoned <laughs> a really good idea of back in the seventies. And now we're, we are, we're about to reap, you know, the, the consequences of getting rid of that good idea. Um, yeah. You know, that gets back to uh, this idea of, you know, over 5,000, uh, Vitas vinifera varieties out there. There's a. I worked with a colleague in uh, at the University of Adelaide. Uh, Kim Anderson has put together a compendium on uh, uh, the best data on what varieties are planted where, and we did a complete climate component of that. But also the the basic framework I think that comes from his work is that we have gotten ourselves to a place where over 50% of the planted acreage in the world is done so with seven varieties. Right. And if we, if we come to the United States, it even pushes it up higher to almost 70% of the planted acreage is done with seven varieties, meaning right. that, that we have disregarded this genetic wealth, uh, that, uh, really we should be looking at in the face of anything, let alone climate, climate change. Right, right. Just maybe seasonal variability. It would be smart. Oh my to God. Yeah. 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 Um, thank you for saying that. Uh, so I don't have to, um, well, it, and it, I mean, it sounds like diversity for sure is, I mean, just another way to put that, like this genetic diversity, cultivar diversity, um, I mean, bringing back the potential for that diversity is a really important aspect to deal, to be adaptive, to to be able to deal with, you know, continuing change, which, like you said, I think it's that expectation. I, I don't know why as consumers, because I, I say I include myself in this, but it is like you expect the same thing to be there. Mm -hmm. Like you, you expect consistency, you, you know, you want what yeah. you want when you want it kind of thing. And, and, and it really is like training people to eat more seasonally you know yeah. and think more seasonally and think more locally like this like we're in winter we shouldn't be able to get basil you know it's like it's, right, right, not, right. A, it's not a winter crop people we shouldn't be able to make a you know whatever it is um uh or, or you know like yeah uh, i mean there are just so many things like that you know, the, you know that I, one, one good question adam is is that uh you you could look at it uh, this as the the card in the horse which came first did right. the production stream make something that uh, addicted everybody to X 
at, at a certain time of the year? Or did consumers just buy enough of it that the production stream is now fixed in that because that's where they make money? That's a great question. And I, I have a sense of that. I mean, I'm, I'm much more, I feel like change, as much as I, I think we should all make choices, make the best choices we can, I do think that like it's so much easier for, you know, I mean, the example I always use is for Coca-Cola to stop using plastic tabs on their bottle tops that get thrown into the ocean then mm-hmm. to try to train four billion people to not throw past plastic tabs into the gutter. You know what I mean? Like all you have right. to do is change the production at the top and suddenly that stream of waste disappears, uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, regardless of what choices people make. And, and yeah, so I guess I lean in that direction of like, yeah. And, and like, for example, if, you, if, if anybody goes to Italy this time of year to, you know, we're in, you know, right before New Year's when we're recording this, like you're not going to see the Italian food that people think is Italian food. You're not going to have, you might have some tomatoes that were canned tomato sauce, but it's really like, it's seasonal. Like you're going to see more like winter vegetables, fried fish and meat and things like that, that are, you know, seasonal. Like they, they, their whole national cuisine is much more based on things that are available locally uh, with the season and, yeah. and so going to a country like that is a really good i think like eye-opening experience for somebody who's used to you know having watermelon in in january for example <laughs> watermelon <laughs> at christmas um, exactly. yeah i well how does this affect what you're doing uh at abisela um like how, what have you guys done what, how has it affected your thinking or changed you know the way that you approach viticulture or just wine in general, your own wine? Well, you know, I think uh, over the years that uh, from when my uh, father first established Abacella in in 1995, we've been very uh, keen on um, letting, you know, the science kind of help guide us. And in in doing so, we, you know, we've, we've planted as many as I think 27 different varieties We've taken some out because they just didn't perform well. It was too warm for a few, too cold for a few. Um, we have um, honed in to what we think fits our uh, climate the best, and we've become fairly well known for those. Uh, but we've also kind of looked at our production systems um, um, and kind of managed them accordingly as well. One of the things that, that I think happened really all over the world uh, in, in many of the, especially new world producing areas, uh, was back in the seventies and eighties, everybody went to, from sprawling canopies to what is called vertical shoot position. Yeah. So, I mean, and it made sense if you wanted to be able to ripen fruit more consistently, you made a solar panel out of your vines and you made it tight. You, you stuck the vines up in a real tight system. You had this vertical structure to it. You had morning sun on one side, afternoon sun on another, and 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 it was really good, I think, for the climates that we played in back then. Um, you fast forward to today, what what I'm seeing out there, and this has happening in many places, is there's more interest in older production systems, training systems, than there has ever been. Plus, people are taking their VSPs. And, and widening the the cross arms so that you're right. allowing the plant to grow more vegetation to protect the fruit right. through either heat stress, sunburn, whatever it may be. But but the idea is you can create that kind of canopy, uh, and that's an adaptive uh, uh, process just within your your vineyard today. So I mean, those are kind of things we've done that here at, at our place. We, as I said, we've honed in better on the varieties that we do well with. It doesn't mean that those varieties are going to necessarily be the best varieties 50 years from now, uh, but but I, there we've got them functioning very well within our current uh, contemporary climate. Well, and you are not afraid to to graft a new to graft a block over to a different variety. It sounds like from what I no, know. we've done a lot of it. Yeah, you've done a lot of just changing what's going on in the yeah. vineyard, literally with variety and. I, I, I mean, I wonder if, you know, you're, you are in the Umpqua Valley and I'm wondering if, 
I mean, I think that people thought as Pino was sort of rising uh, as a star in Oregon that, you know, the Umpqua Valley was sort of challenged in that it didn't have a signature grape. But now I, I bet that you guys are sort of having the last laugh here because it's so much <laughs> easier for you to sort of say, well, yeah, no, we don't have a signature vet. We can do anything and we need to do new things. And so this is actually a great opportunity for us to, to change and adapt. And, and we're not really stuck with any one thing. So you were pioneering. Yeah, this, is, um, th- this kind of ties a little bit into uh, what uh, transpired after I finished my PhD. So I was at the University of Virginia uh, doing my PhD, but my research was in Bordeaux. So I traveled back and forth to Bordeaux. Uh, at one point in time, I may have had more data on uh, Bordeaux, uh, you know, vineyards and phenology and, and pr- productivity and quality than anybody. And and it was through that PhD work that I I, I, I completed my PhD on that uh, uh, the Bordeaux data. And then when I finished and I, uh, I taught for a year or so at UVA, and then I, I uh, decided I was going to apply for a job. And uh, by that time, my father had already established Abacella, so I knew where it was. It was in the Umpqua Valley. And when, uh, when that year, when a, uh, some jobs at being a professor, a scientist came out, I, uh, I applied for a few and had a few job offers. And I was about ready to accept a job back east. Uh, actually in New York at Colgate University. And uh, and there was a job uh, that came out one morning in the Chronicle of Higher Education for Southern Oregon University, which is in Ashland, Oregon, about an hour and a half south of Abacella. And uh, I, knew, I knew what kind of little town Ashland was. I really liked the climate and the West Coast, of course. And, and so um, I told my wife, we got to, uh, I can't take the Colgate job yet. I got to go out here and, and interview. So I came out and interviewed. I had a really good interview. I, I came up and surprised my my dad and, and stepmother and, and sisters and and uh, uh, made it back home and got a phone call and uh, uh, they offered me a job and it was just like a no brainer. I came to Southern Oregon University to a wine region that had been around for about thirty plus years, but really had not had anybody doing any research for it. So I started doing research uh, for uh, both the Rogue Valley and the Umpqua Valley. I, I GPSed every vineyard in the uh, late 1990s to early 2000 period. Uh, I, I did surveys every year. I installed reference vineyards where I monitored uh, site temperature and phenology and things for, I had a project for 20 years that I did uh, within the Rogue Valley and Umpqua Valley. And in doing all of that, it allowed me to learn more about this region, but also help uh, my, you know, my father and what he was doing as well. And, and part of learning that is what you were just talking about, this idea that does it take a signature variety to make a, a place special? Well, it, 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 it might in some ways, but what we've learned in Southern Oregon is, is that we have a, such a diverse framework for growing grapes, we have we have elevational differences that drive uh, ripening potentials from cool to fairly warm varieties. Uh, we have rain shadow effects from the coast inland that produce some very interesting uh, uh, dry patterns in, in our growing regions. And so, from that, we and some of the earlier surveys I did, uh, we found that seventy plus grapes were being grown in the region, and people are every year. Uh, experimenting with new ones. So I, I'm not, I think we've kind of honed in on a collection of maybe four or five, six varieties that really kind of stand out within Southern Oregon. Um, but yet we still are a very, very diverse uh, variety producing region. Yeah. It, I, I think one of the quotes that I wrote down that you might've said during your presentation uh, was, if you're in agriculture, you need to experiment. Does that sound like something you Oh yeah, I, I always say that. If I, if I, you know, back when I was um, uh, being the scientist in academia and doing a little consulting, I would go visit people who wanted to grow grapes or who were already growing grapes, and if and I would ask them, well, what are you experimenting with, or do you have a? And they would say, well, I've only planted two varieties, and that's it. I would be like, well, how come you don't have, you know, a little small area where you're 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 testing a few things that might. Uh, 
might be different, might work better. And um, just a lot of people don't go down that road, but I think it's really important to, to understand that, whether it be the, the, the plant system, the variety in that plant system, or how you manage it. If you don't do some kind of research on your own site, you'll never know what those potentials are. Can you talk about Zoil? <laughs> and are you still using it there? Um, did you? I'm sorry, Soil? Zoil with a Z. Zoil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, um, we, we developed a very interesting uh, relationship with the Wildlife Safari, which is um, uh, not very far, about within about a third of a mile from our property. Matter of fact, we can hear the lions roar on a good day. Um, <laughs> um, but the Wildlife Safari here is a, it's one of the larger outdoor uh, 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 safari uh, locations in, in the U.S., and they um, have been really good partners with, uh, with the wine industry here. And for us, it's not only been a good partner from a tourism standpoint, but we've had this uh, relationship where we provide them hay from some of our open uh, field areas, and they in turn provide um, a Zudu, uh, essentially uh, uh, truckloads. And when I mean truckloads, I mean truckloads of, of, uh, of uh, Zudu from elephants and hippos and rhinos and, and whatnot. And then what we do is every year we, uh, we mix that in with the uh, leftover from our production, uh, the, the mark from a pressing uh, right. uh, the, the rachis from uh, uh, from destemming uh, and any other material we do, we 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 put that together. We don't we make enough uh, zudu or zoil to um, spread around our, our vineyard uh, about a two or three acre area every year, and so we don't cover the entire vineyard every year with it. But we strategically uh, um, um, put that back in the vineyard and. Uh, it's always fun to kind of watch it go through its process. And we, it's, it's right now it's fermenting away in, in our Zudu pile. Nice. Uh, I'm sure it makes for some fun microorganisms in the soil and, and oh, yeah. interesting wines. You also have some really old vines there. Do you, are there, are, is, can you talk about those? I, if I remember correctly, some of the oldest unknown varieties perhaps sure, sure. in Oregon. Yeah, and, and this is kind of a really interesting uh, one because as I told you, the, the key for my father was finding the place that had the right climate uh, to grow Tempranillo, right. Spanish variety. And, and little did we know that there was already a Spanish variety on our site. Yeah. And, and how that came about, um, uh, we, we don't know the full story, but it's, I think it's fairly easy to um, think about the history of kind of the West Coast and, and, and how things came here. Um, uh, the property that we bought back in 1993 was homesteaded in the late 1840s. And the, the family that homesteaded it um, uh, uh, was doing a little bit of pasture and cattle, and then they had some orchards and... and uh, uh, there was this one area that when we bought the property, the historic orchard was uh, located. Um, and we we really enjoyed it because the, the apples and pears and plums that came out of it were, some of them were heirloom, the kind of things that you just wouldn't see uh, in many places today. And so we, we kind of tried to take care of that a little bit. But we always, right in that general area around the homestead orchard, uh, there was a fairly large blackberry patch uh, that had been there since day one. And every now and then my father noticed that there was a grapevine leaf poking out of it. And uh, he kept thinking, oh, birds have just dropped a, a seed and, and there's a, a, a vine growing down in the middle of this. And then uh, he was doing a, some development in a, one of our other vineyards over by there. And he, was, uh, he, he, had the, um, uh, he had a tractor out there and he said, well, we're just gonna bulldoze this. And so he went over to bulldoze it and he gave it a little push and, and saw that there was actually more, more to the, those leaves and structure that he thought. So he started over the next, uh, I think it was a course of two or three years, slowly getting the blackberry patch uh, taken out. And what he found was he found multiple uh, uh, trunks uh, with, uh, you know, about as big as around as a man's arm 
uh, uh, in terms of the trunks. They were all kind of intertwined within this blackberry uh, thicket. And so he started slowly getting working that out. And, and, and then once we got to the point where we could really see that there was some structure to it, we uh, took cuttings and we sent them off to um, uh, UC Davis to uh, have them check for uh, their genetics. And the DNA came back as Listan Prieto. Listan Prieto is a a variety that's um, hasn't, it's not planted very much in, in, in Spain anymore. There's a little bit out on the islands, the Azores uh, area, but it's, um, it's a historic variety because it was the first variety to make it into Central America when the Spaniards, the conquistadors uh, came across. And it became what is called the mission grape, which you're probably familiar with. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So Listan Prieto is um, um, has been grown all the way south into Chile and Argentina. It's called Pais down there uh, in California. It's been called the mission grape. It made it up uh, as sacrament wine as it was coming up uh, the California coast up to all the way up to the Sonoma Mission. Yeah. And um, we think that the the cuttings made it to us uh, uh, once the California gold rush started to wane in the 18, early 1850s. We think that uh, people were coming to Oregon to either trade and or look for gold in Oregon. And it's very possible that it made it up into the Rogue Valley uh, and then possibly into the Umpqua or maybe the people who homesteaded our property may have gone down into the Umpqua or down into the Rogue and they were able to somehow get cuttings and they planted them uh, within their orchard. So they were, who knows, they could have been making juice. It could have been just fresh fruit. Uh, Listan Prieto produces a very big cluster with fairly large uh, grapes. So it could have easily been for juice. Um, we, we really don't know quite uh, what they did with it, but, uh, but those grapes um, had to have gotten there sometime in the 1850s. Yeah, and, uh, and so now we've recovered that. Uh, we've uh, the blackberries are mostly gone, and we've created now essentially our heritage or mission vineyard uh, over there. And we're producing. Uh, uh, we started off doing a, a dry style Listan Prieto, especially from the first couple of vintages, and and now we have gone down the path of making a a, a true Angelica sacrament nice. wine, yeah. very much like a port wine. Yeah, yeah, named for Los Angeles, um, that where where <laughs> where I think uh, yeah it became it became popular and famous with the same grape here grown here yeah. uh, for that. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we we were visited not long ago. A woman uh, read about our our finding Los Temperato here, and she came from Temecula uh, and yeah. uh, uh, came up, and she she and her husband. Uh, have Listan Prieto on her property, and she was just so excited. I took her over to the vineyard. We we talked about it, and oh, it was just great. Yeah. So those vines, uh, I mean, they were still producing then, and you just yeah, had to they were still of... producing. They they were doing something interesting, Adam. The uh, do you know what layering is? Yeah, yeah. No, I and I we've I've seen an old vineyard down here. Uh, I actually helped prune one uh, that the same thing. It had been abandoned for like eighty years, and it. It was doing the exact same thing. Please yeah, go so on. These, these, these were clearly doing some layering and, and producing. Uh, well, we, there's quite a few trunks within the what, what we call the mother uh, block, which is uh, not very big, but there's potentially as many as three different, I would say, um, clonal hybrids. Uh, they all genetically uh, uh, show as Listan Prieto, but their fruit is very different. One is a little darker red, one is a little bit more pinkish, and another is almost white in terms of its fruit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we used to try to keep that separate, but we just, we it just, we think it just adds complexity to it. And so uh, we put it all together today. And do you, I mean, do you have to, it sounds like they've found their own sort of level of stability without much care like i would do you need to well, prune or do you spray it now or anything yeah what we did is the the mother um, block so to speak we've left that um uh the way it was we we prune it back and we let it be kind of a jumble of uh of those um, uh, plants but we also took uh cuttings and we put them on a rootstock and we have now 
oh, I can't remember the number of plants, but we have somewhere between uh, 150 and 200 plants uh, that we're producing from. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Yeah. I really like the wine that comes from it. It reminds me, in some ways, especially when you get that sort of field blend, uh, it reminds me of like a light red that also is structured, sort of like a Nebbiolo or a, or a Norella Muscalese kind of thing. Um, something like that where you have, it's light, but but uh, tannic um, at times. Is that what you're finding as well? Yeah, that's, that's uh, totally what we're finding. Um, yeah. we, we haven't bottled it uh, for commercial uh, purposes yet, but we are about ready to. We, we will have a Angelica bottling probably in January or early February. So it'll be the uh, 2021 vintage uh, that we'll be putting into bottle. Um, so we're looking forward to that. And uh, yeah. it's a great story, uh, you know, with this this whole focus of my father to grow Spanish grapes and coming to a place that had never yeah. seen Tempranillo before. And lo and behold, there's another Spanish grape already here. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, I, I knew, I, I mean, I guess... I wanted to just mention your your websites as well. Um, so you you have two, and I both are full of information. I mean, this seems like a theme for for your family to really give a lot of great, useful information, historical information, scientific information. But uh, abacela dot com, a b a c e l a dot com, and then you do climateofwine dot com, um, which has a ton of great stuff, especially. If you're interested in some vintage reports on the different regions within Oregon for the past five years or so, um, really great info there. Is there are there other ways that people should or get in touch with you or try to experience uh, Abisela? Well, the uh, on both of those websites, um, uh, there are places uh, on there that you can contact, uh, get in contact with me directly off the website. Uh, Great. But uh, I, my email is pretty simple, uh, greg at abacella.com. Uh, the, the Climate of Wine website was when I, when I left academia and, and came to be the CEO at Abacella, I knew I needed to have a presence somewhere. So I, I, I took all of my academic uh, material, publications, you know, videos, so on and so forth and posted them on that website. And I do some reports. I, matter of fact, if, if, if any of your listeners are interested in this, I, uh, for 24 years now, I've been writing a monthly West Coast uh, weather and climate summary. And I post that to the Climate of Wine site, also to the Avicella site as well, because we have some other people that, that read it there. But what I do is I write a, oh, it's only about a six or seven page report of, um, uh, of the month or season that was current conditions and then the, the month or coming season in terms of a forecast. And, and it's, you know, it's more clearly geared toward the wine industry, but it's, it's in general, just a broad kind of good overview of what to, uh, what we know about weather and climate in our region. Yeah. I, I mean, really great info, super super deep there's tons to read tons to read uh if anybody's interested in many different subjects and yeah i can't i mean i started rabbit holing and had to stop because i was (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah lots lots of great stuff there um as a closing question for you this is really something i'm just sort of bringing up uh, off the cuff but I, to a, to a certain extent, I can I worry that when I bring up things like climate change and and you know the sort of stark nature of the data that you you know are bringing to our awareness that I that I'm, I'm creating fear or that or that I'm creating a sense of um, despair or or a need to make climate change uh, like a new religion that we all need to um, join and focus all of our attentions on. Can you respond to to that or the, you know like where 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 you know do you have any words of wisdom maybe just closing words of wisdom for for people as they consider these things? You know, I, I think it goes back to what I said earlier. I think that yeah, you did you did it, say some good stuff. If, yeah. if we're not aware of the challenges and how it all works, then there's no way that we can perceive risk and or address potential adaptive or mitigative kind of processes. 
if, if we're ignorant, we're not listening to the science and we're not trying to be aware, we, we can't even make it past step one. So I think that's the despair of, is really not being an aware uh, individual. So I, I, you know, yes, of course, there's a lot of things that are uh, um, discouraging, uh, but, but you got to look at it as uh, the openness by being aware really, I think, starts the process for how we can address this as a society. Yeah, that's great. I, I heard a quote recently that um, was, hope is an excuse for waiting for somebody else to do something. And I often think of that in relation to my own things where it's like, I don't want to be, I want to be informed and aware, not, not hopeful. Um, and, and use that information to make smart choices and make, you know, take better action myself, uh, and not, you know, just think that these problems will be solved by somebody else. I don't know. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> um, I think that's good. I think it's good. Um, Greg, thank you so much. This has been really just fun to talk and and really uh, really informative. And I should say the presentation you you've graciously given permission, so I will be putting that on the organicwinepodcast.com website for anybody who's listening to this and wants to see that presentation that you gave at Vidinor. That is um, just another really just a great I think a, a great summary report presentation on all of these things so thank you for sharing that as well well you know, thank you adam i appreciate it it's good been good chatting with you and i i'd like to invite you and any of your listeners if you're ever uh, driving up i-5 uh, uh, and going through the umqua valley uh, look us up uh, i do uh, twice a week i do uh, uh, tours by reservation uh, just me and and you know the two, three, four people that want to go. Uh, we do, um, we drive through the vineyard. We talk about all these kinds of things. Uh, we go through the winery, we taste some wines and uh, uh, it's a good experience. So if you're interested, uh, uh, get on novacella.com and make a reservation. Perfect. I love it. All right. Thank you very much, Greg. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you did and would like to support this podcast, please do. There is a Patreon link in the show notes where you can subscribe with a monthly, very low subscription to add monetary support. Or please subscribe on your feed, whatever, wherever you listen to this podcast, subscribe and follow this podcast so that you will automatically download it when each new episode comes out. That's one of the few metrics that we can measure to see the support and and listenership of this and otherwise if you're already listening subscribe support whatever uh just longtime listener haven't done anything please uh do a review if you would any positive review with five stars and a nice word <laughs> is fantastic and helpful and uh really improves the algorithmic performance of this podcast so thank you so much <laughs>